Tēnā koutou nō mai, haere mai. Good morning and welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tame. Now is not the time to panic. That's the message from public health experts as Kiwis decimate supermarket supplies in the wake of our first COVID-19 coronavirus case. We'll look at public health plans from here on out. Plus, Grant Robertson tells us when he'll know if we're headed for recession. And we hear from students stranded by our travel ban. I should have graduated this year after this year and then it might be have to move it to next year. We have some of the strictest border controls globally. Uh, we have stricter measures, for instance, in Australia now as well. The Prime Minister has very publicly pressed Australian PM Scott Morrison to relax his hardline policy on returning criminals to New Zealand. It's being blamed for an increase in gang numbers here, but are communities right to be scared? There are 1,400 more packed gang members, according to police, uh, in New Zealand today. Even last night we had a gunshot down the street at 10.30 at night. Um, it's just an ongoing drama. We'll get to that issue shortly, but we need to begin with the very latest on the COVID-19 coronavirus. In the last hour, the US has confirmed its first death from COVID-19. And after a patient at Auckland Hospital tested positive for the virus on Friday, a sense of panic swept through some New Zealand communities. But public health officials are urging calm. Professor Michael Baker from the University of Otago's Department of Public Health is with us from Pōneke, Wellington this morning. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. To yeah. be clear, even though we have a confirmed case, this is what public health officials have been expecting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Australia has identified more than 20 cases. It was just a matter of time before we saw a case uh, like the one that's, that's occurred. What do you make of the public health response so far? Well, I think it's, it's been very good. I mean, New Zealand has a well-developed pandemic plan and it is rolling it out very systematically. We're at the keep it out stage. And uh, as you've described it, New Zealand is um, following that path very effectively. What happens from here? Well, that first case is the, the kind of case you want to detect. It shows that the system is working. Um, the family did all the right things. Uh, they rang Healthline, uh, they went to hospital and they were diagnosed very effectively. The family's been quarantined. So in a way, uh, these are the sort of cases that don't really change our status. We don't yet have community transmission in New Zealand. And that's the next thing we have to watch out for. And that would be uh, cases appearing in the community with no connection to overseas travel. Uh, and that's part of this possibility of silent transmission because most people don't have major symptoms. Is there any telling when that will happen? No, it can happen at any time. And we've seen this happen um, in many countries overseas. So it's just the inevitability that the pandemic will arrive in New Zealand. Is there a possibility that people who were on the plane with the confirmed COVID-19 patient could be silently transmitting this infection? Well, they've all, all been followed up. And really, the risk on a flight is, is low, and it's really confined to people just sitting very close to the infected person. So they are being followed up now, and, and they're also being... Uh, basically self-quarantined for 14 days. So uh, the response has been really excellent to this particular case. What will happen when we go to the next stage? 
Well, you'll hear a lot more about the uh, stamp it out and in the management phase. So we're not used to going through a pandemic like this in, in um, uh, this country. This is the most uh, serious pandemic threat for a century. And uh, things like social distancing measures, um, this, this is not something we're used to. But this you'll see this rolled out um, as is happening overseas. And that will be measures to reduce transmission in the community. What do you think public health officials should be doing to prepare? Well, we have this opportunity. We bought time by uh, uh, keeping the virus out to this point. And now I think we should be having conversations about far more imaginative approaches of managing this risk. And um, one of them is the idea of using safe havens. This is the idea of having parts of New Zealand where we try very hard to keep the virus out. And one of the reasons for doing this is to protect those populations, but also to provide a place where the most vulnerable New Zealanders could potentially relocate for a period of months until the uh, worst of the pandemic has passed. And this is part of um, the pandemic plan in Iceland. They can basically seal off parts of the country in a very orderly, orderly way. That's a thing that's highly planned. And already we've heard that uh, in discussion about New Zealand's emergency powers last week, uh, some mention of places like Great Barrier Island and the Chatham Islands, where it might be useful to take special precautions. Is that necessary? Well, you have an infection here that um, does have a fatality risk which is hovering around 1%, but it's much higher for older people, maybe around 15% for people over 80, um, around 10% for people with underlying illnesses. So uh, these are very vulnerable groups. Uh, they can be potentially protected at home. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have antivirals. So I think we have to think uh, in more creative ways. And really, New Zealand is... Um, an exceptionally innovative society mm. with a huge amount of trust in our government and our agencies. Uh, this is one of the only countries on earth, I think, that could, could contemplate doing these more, you could say radical, but I think mm. sensible approaches. To, to be clear, though, are, are you suggesting that, for example, people over the age of 70 or over the age of 80 who are most at risk here go to Great Barrier Island for a period? Uh, not necessarily Great Barrier Island, but just to have the conversation about options for protecting the most vulnerable. We may decide it's not uh, feasible. We may decide that, um, I mean, there are um, other versions where you, mm. and, and this will apply to, say, residential care facilities where many people are older and more vulnerable. They will already be thinking about ways of protecting those populations. But it's the problem is the, the duration of a pandemic. It may last for, for many months. So you do have to have a very organised, proactive approach. Professor, we saw some extraordinary scenes at supermarkets around New Zealand yesterday. What do you think the panic buying says about the public health messaging in New Zealand? Well, it says, I mean, it's not just a messaging in New Zealand. Anyone looking online or looking at the news broadcasts, mm. seeing the behaviour of people overseas would, uh, I think, be naturally worried. We, we say... Um, prepare, don't panic. And I think everyone now should be having that conversation with their families, uh, with their workplaces and schools about what a pandemic will mean for them and get to know your neighbours, particularly people who may be living on their own and may be quite isolated. The public health messaging has been pretty clear. New Zealanders have been told not to panic and yet they were, prepared, they were lining up for hours outside supermarkets yesterday. Do you think that, that speaks to a distrust in some of that messaging? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. I think people, uh, there is a strange um, uh, mass uh, response to mm. these kind of threats. I mean, the other thing is that some of it is sensible. I mean, we, we civil defence tells us we do need to have um, certain supplies in our homes. I think we're actually not always very good at doing that. I think people do need to have a couple of weeks' food for themselves, mm. food for pets, uh, make sure they've thing. got enough medicines. But some of this was clearly um, absurd, like uh, buying bottled water. Um, makes no sense whatsoever. No. Would you personally use public transport or fly internationally at the moment? I would, but we have to prepare ourselves when those um, things we've taken for granted will change very significantly. Um, but at the moment, it is, in a way, business as usual in New Zealand. People should be out enjoying uh, life. That We should be going to Chinese restaurants. There's no... We have mm. to really avoid... Uh, really uh, prejudice and discrimination. So just just carry on as usual, but just have these conversations now about what a pandemic will look like, because it is a new thing for all of us. Professor Michael Baker from Otago University, Tenakwe, thank you for your time. Thank you. There is a dedicated health line number for advice and information on COVID-19. Here it is. It's 0800 358 5453. 0800-358-5453. Anyone who has visited an affected country or anyone developing symptoms who is concerned, call this number first or ring ahead to your GP. Don't turn up at the doctors without making a phone call first. The spread of COVID-19 is much more than a public health emergency. It has the potential to develop into a global economic crisis. From tourism to education and our primary industries, New Zealand businesses are already feeling the pain. Even in the best case scenario, the government says New Zealand will experience flat growth for the first quarter of this year. I sat down with Finance Minister Grant Robertson, who says we'll know over the next month if the economic impact will be much worse. It is a fast-moving situation, so at the moment uh, the expectations of the IMF and others is that there will be a rebound in the second half of the year, but the more that we see this spread to other countries beyond China, the more it's likely we move to the second of our scenarios, which is that we'll see an impact right through 2020. We're in the preparation period for the budget at the moment, and that's a good marker post, I think, for us to be able to say, if at that point we need to be looking at fiscal stimulus, we'll be in a position to be able to do so it. So what will the conditions be on budget day if you need to look at fiscal stimulus? Well, what we're looking at there is if we're looking at a, a year-long slowdown in growth. Uh, and, you know, we had good numbers going into the first half of the financial year, the end of December. We were well ahead of our projections on revenue coming in, on where we should have been on debt and so on. So we're in a good position at the end of those six months. We're going to see some data coming through from the first quarter and as you say, it won't be pretty. Uh, what we now need to look at is by the time we get to the budget, how's it looking for the second half of the year and will we then be in a position to need to move? To be clear though, at what point do you expect to know for sure that this is likely to be at least a year-long economic event? I just want to know what yeah. that tipping point is. Look, I think, it's going to be yeah, I think it's going to be over the coming month um, once we see whether or not China in particular gets back to normal in terms of output. Mm. What is the impact around things like tourism from other countries now that we've seen the spread? So we're monitoring this on a day-by-day -day basis. Mm. But to be clear, the impact is significant in the short term and it could become longer if it lasts longer.
longer if, overseas. If it gets to that point, what sort of fiscal assistance would be appropriate? Well, as I say, you know, the, what the economists call the automatic stabilisers kick in. Mm. So that's the fact that the Ministry of Social Development has the ability to make emergency assistance grants to make sure people have the income they need. Mm. The Inland Revenue Department is working with companies already on whether or not they need to make their provisional tax return now, can they delay it, making sure there won't be penalties. All of that extends out, all of those services extend out. Then we've got the Reserve Bank, which obviously makes its decisions independently, but they can make monetary policy decisions. If, as we get towards the budget, we need to be planning for that longer-term scenario, then you're talking about more direct fiscal stimulus, income support-type measures, possibly using the tax system. But we're not there yet. We're planning for it, but we aren't predicting that. But, OK, but what is your preference, then? If, if it gets to that point, are you looking at some broad options, or are you looking at targeted assistance? Well, in, if we're looking at the, the medium-term scenario, where it lasts for a year or so, mm. then we'll be looking at sector-specific initiatives, because different sectors are affected differently. You know, we, we're already seeing that with the forestry industry versus, say, the dairy industry, where you're seeing different impacts. So that medium-term scenario would be there. What's really important to us is that, you know, those who are the most vulnerable are looked after first, so that's mm. where the income support system comes in. If we did end up in the worst-case scenario and it went further, then we look to what countries have done in the past in response to, for example, the global financial crisis, mm. where you can give more direct income support measures across the board. Okay, well, and what would those direct income <laughs> well, measures we're be? Still income we're still designing I mean, are they tax cuts? Well, that's one way of doing it, but obviously tax cuts um, tend to be permanent, and so you have to look at that, whether as you want a temporary stimulus, you might use... A one-off cash payment? In, in Australia, we saw that in the past. We're just in the process of looking and designing that. All of those options are on the table, but it's for a scenario that at this stage we're not predicting. So we're in the planning phase for that, and by the time we get to the budget, we'll be able to say a bit more. Are you talking to the big banks? Yes. Yeah. I met with bank economists uh, this week. I've had conversations with a number of banks, and, and one of my things I've been saying to them is to urge them to talk to their customers. Uh, in turn, we want businesses to be talking to workers and to unions to make sure that we're actually all in this together. Um, we will get through this. Mm. This will pass eventually, but we need to work together while we're in it. What can the banks do better? Well, I think the thing I want to guard against is banks um, using this as an opportunity to deal with bits of their loan book that they're finding challenging. And I don't think any New Zealand bank would do that, but it is important that, for example, with the rural sector, who've got pressure from drought mm. as well, that actually banks are working with those farmers, working with those communities to make sure that they support them through this. Because at the other end, the New Zealand economy has still got strong fundamentals. Our, our primary sector is still producing goods people want to buy, and I just want the banks and all industries, but especially that one, working together. From the information you have today, how likely do you think is a recession? The information I have today is that there won't be one. That's the advice that we're getting, that there will be a bounce back from this. We'll have very low, if any, growth in the first quarter. The second quarter, perhaps some growth. But this moves fast, Jack, and that means that that prediction could be revised in the coming weeks. OK. If you uh, cast your gaze internationally, how confident are you in other countries' reporting of infection and death rates? Yeah, look, we have to trust what we hear. We don't really have an option 
and the WHO in particular, who we take our lead from, have to use the official statistics we get. What we've seen in, in the last few days is that the number of infections outside China is more than those inside China. So that points to the fact that some of the containment measures in China are starting to work. From an economic perspective, we're hearing from businesses that some orders are now coming from China. Mm. So there's starting to be some movement there. In other countries, you know, we know that their public health response might not be quite as sophisticated. And so we can only really be responsible for our own public health response and use the WHO in terms of what is happening internationally. But can you trust the numbers? Well, we have to, in a sense. But in a sense, for us, that doesn't really matter, does it? Because well, our it does job when is you're to make sure our, what our, we're our response. doing. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I mean, if you, I mean, for example, if, if the infection rate is actually much higher than has been reported, then it means that the death rate is lower as a percentage, right? So, and, and which in turn shapes our response. Yeah, but we take a precautionary approach regardless, mm -hmm. and, and that's really what we've done. You know, we've put in place the, the, the travel um, restrictions that we have, mm -hmm. and we continue to monitor that every 48 hours, and if it's necessary to expand those on the basis of our best judgment, then that's what we'll do. Are you worried about a relationship with China? Uh, no, I'm not. I think we've got a really good and strong relationship with China, and I know you know the Prime Minister spoke to the Ambassador as recently they're as last week. They're not happy. Oh, but you know they're, they're facing this from every country in the world. We we understand the importance of it, and in fact, when Minister Davis and I met with the tourism industry just last week, uh, we discussed the plan for rebuilding that market for tourism in China and taking a New Zealand Inc approach. So we've got a good history in our relationship with China, and we'll keep that going into the future. Are there likely to be further repercussions? as a result of our travel ban from China? I don't believe so. As I say, other countries are in exactly the same boat um, with China and we're continuing to keep communication going. If there was a similar outbreak in, say, New York, would New Zealand have banned students from California? Well, this is, of course, you know, this is the situation where the outbreak, would, we would have focused on where people were travelling from. Uh, we would have focused on the, the epidemiology of that outbreak. Mm. But, Let's be clear. But it comes down to the data again. Yeah, that's my point. Can we trust the data yeah. from the Chinese government? This started in, in the Wuhan area. Yeah. That's the area that we focused on. We clearly had to make decisions about, about what we were doing in terms of travel, and that's the decision we made on the best health expert advice. How is this changing your plans for the budget? Um, certainly making putting a budget together challenging. Uh, it's not changing the core of what we're doing in the budget. Um, the priorities we've identified around a just transition to a low-carbon economy, child well-being, mental health, those are long-running issues we have to invest in. But as I'm putting the budget together, I'm obviously keeping an eye to preparing for those second and third scenarios. Are you still committed to that big infrastructure spend? Absolutely. And in fact, you know, arguably in a situation where challenges are coming to the global mm. economy, that's when governments must step up. The good thing about the infrastructure package is it's got a medium and long-term pipeline. That's important for certainty. It's a fiscal stimulus. The real question for us now is, do we need a more immediate-term fiscal stimulus, which wouldn't come from infrastructure, but would come from the other issues we've been talking about? As Finance Minister, is this your biggest test? Oh, every day is a test when you're the Finance Minister. Um, we've put together two good, solid budgets. I'm very proud of the way we've managed the economy. We've managed it carefully, but we've got a balance between the big investments we need to make and preparing ourselves for occasions just like this. Finance Minister Grant Robertson. He also had an announcement about some big changes to KiwiSaver that will be of interest to you. I'll bring you that part of our interview a little later in the programme.
After the break, though, we're staying with the COVID-19 threat with a closer look at schools and universities who've been hit hard by the travel restrictions. Thousands of fee-paying Chinese students are, of course, stuck at home as the first semester gets underway. The window of opportunity is, is closing very rapidly. Hoki Mayano, welcome back. The education sector is still hoping the government will relax its ban on Chinese students travelling to Aotearoa as the university year gets underway. The international education market is worth around $4.8 billion and Chinese students make up a third of the yearly intake. And then there are the students themselves waiting anxiously at home, as Fina Owen reports. Orientation week a few days ago at Auckland University. It's an upbeat week where students get their bearings before getting down to work. But in the corner of the quad, some Chinese students are huddled around their phones, their connection with what's happening at home and with their student mates who are stranded in China. There's so much uncertainty, like they don't know when they will come back and then they don't know like if they can pass the course as if they were here and then um, they don't know whether there will be like a graduation delay. So this, kinda like, this is kind of like the mental stress on them. This is Fu Zhao in southeast China and one of the city's high-rises is third-year Auckland University student Cheryl Zhang. She's waiting for the travel ban to be lifted. Yeah, I'm just doing nothing and being bored at home. Via Skype, she told us she fears she may be too late to complete this trimester. I should have graduated this year after this year, and then it might be have to move it to next year. Cheryl's one of 2,000 Auckland University students caught up in the ban. She's self-isolating, even though her city has avoided chronic spread of COVID-19. It's actually not too bad. Because like we are not the epicenter of the coronavirus, and then the city is going back to normal like these days. The situation is improved compared to last month. Yeah, my parents they have they have to go back to work from this week already. In Wellington, Victoria University is missing 500 students also waiting in China. The university's vice-chancellor, Professor Grant Guilford, also heads the Combined Universities Committee on International Education. He says it's getting to the crunch point. If the ban is not lifted um, uh, in a temporary fashion over the next few days, and you factor in the delay getting your visa, the delay getting your flights, uh, and then the two weeks of isolation you'll have to go through once you come to New Zealand, you're not going to make it to your class. So the window of opportunity is, is closing very rapidly. So on an individual level, potentially disruptive to thousands of young people's courses and careers, and more broadly, a high cost to New Zealand. First and foremost, the Vice-Chancellor insists Chinese students strengthen the China-New Zealand relationship. It also does earn a lot of money, and so for the universities, there's 12,000 students come here from China. If we were to take the worst-case scenario and said no students came, uh, then that's a $300 million hit per year for the universities and a $600 million hit for the communities. In Christchurch, international students are very much part of Burnside High School's culture. 16 students are waiting in China, but in constant contact with their teachers. They are anxious. They're missing school. 
This is Phil Holstein, Burnside's principal. His school will have around 91 Chinese students this year, all paying up to $15,000 each. That sum is sizeable. And already we've talked about it at board level and the implications of that. Totally out of our control, but bottom line, down the, the line with our budget, it's going to have a significant impact. School boards are also worrying about a drop-off over the last three years of Chinese students enrolling to study here. So we were mindful of that. We didn't expect it or predict as many this year. Then coronavirus hit and that's just blown it out of the whole picture. Well, good afternoon, everyone. On Friday, when the first case of coronavirus in New Zealand was confirmed, the government announced a travel ban on arrivals from Iran. And a decision not to allow any exemptions for overseas students from China. We all understand like the governments have to put the health and safety of New Zealand people first, and then we are still like a small portion of the country. So um, if the New Zealand, we, we believe like New Zealand government will consider us and care about us. The care of the students once they do arrive back will be a mammoth operation. The government is not keen on self-isolation. The universities have proposed another idea. Which uh, requires the universities to uh, find isolation facilities into which the, they put their students rather than self-isolating those students in flats or apartments or wherever they were heading uh, for the accommodation that they had organised. That seems to be much more acceptable to members of the public and that's, if we get approved, that's the most likely option that we will have. Cheryl doesn't care what option they come up with, she'd just rather be in Auckland than doing nothing in full jail. Put us in a university building or somewhere else. Yeah, I think we just need the government maybe to provide us some help on our daily life. The universities are already preparing for the students' arrival and considering how to combat any discrimination. The big downside of travel bans, and it's well recorded across time, is uh, they create a stigmatisation of the whole nation or the whole um, heritage that's been affected by that ban. So Prof Guilford says when the students do return, they can count on a warm welcome. Those already here will also make sure of that when their mates finally get to campus. In the meantime, they're helping to keep up morale. China, China, and reporting there. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQA. Post on our Facebook page or email us at QA at tvnz.co.nz. Our panel is here after the break and we'll share with you the government's big changes to KiwiSaver announced today because fossil fuels are out. Yep, default KiwiSaver providers have been given a deadline to drop all investments in fossil fuels and illegal weapons. Plus, gang violence in Bay of Plenty has the local community deeply concerned about its safety. Why have gang numbers increased? And are we helpless to stop their recruitment drive? To be clear though, at what point do you expect to know for sure that this is likely to be at least a year-long economic event? I just want to know what yeah. that tipping point is. Look, I think, it's it's be yeah, I think it's going to be over the coming month um, once we see whether or not China in particular gets back to normal in terms of output. Mm. What is the impact around things like tourism from other countries now that we've seen the spread? So we're monitoring this on a day-by-day -day basis. Mm. But to be clear, the impact is significant in the short term and it could become longer if it lasts long. If, 
Finance Minister Grant Robertson there watching day by day to see just how bad this gets. Let's bring in the panel. Fran O'Sullivan, NZME Head of Business and Economist Shamabil Yakub, Tena Kordua, thanks for being with us on Q&A this morning. Let's start off with the government's economic response. Do you have confidence in what Grant Robertson said this morning? Have they got it right? Well, I think Grant has laid out a range of scenarios, particularly going back to the speech he gave to the Auckland Business Chamber this week. Uh, I think it's still very much early days, but however, we do have really good solid information out of the um, what's known as the Business uh, Roundtable in China about just how mm. their members are being affected. So it is, it is starting to crunch on key industries right now, clearly tourism, uh, education, as we heard before, these are major ones. Shambhir, what do you make of the government response so far? I think a lot of the responses are things that will kick in later and my fear is that there is currently a cash crunch and a confidence crunch on businesses affected today and we need to have more I guess agile responses and I would really like to see we avoid job losses in businesses that are really facing disruption and yes of course are in tourism and exports but what people aren't talking about is all those import businesses that are so reliant on the supply chain going back to China and the jobs there are actually much bigger you know we're probably talking 15k jobs in uh, tourism 15k in exports but 45k in imports so this kind of the silent giant of these jobs and businesses that are affected where I think the government should be offering things like no standard period access to welfare and keeping people in jobs and giving support now because it is a short-term thing are we at the point where we need those responses to kick in now or is this something that would happen in say a month's time well I want them to be now because I want businesses to know that we're all in this together and we have a plan that's going to work it's going to keep your cash crunch at bay and there's lots of other things we can do in terms of you know making sure the invoices are done right like Grant talked about with provisional tax payments um, we can make sure that uh, the banks extend lines of credit um, in special circumstances these are things that we can do but we need to announce that we are we know this is a problem we know that this business can access help and it's not just those businesses that are most visible we have a wider understanding of what's happening in New Zealand today. I mean the, the finance minister articulated that, that they are considering a range of options and some of those would kick in in the relative short term frame. Are they not enough if we're looking at cash injections and that sort of thing? Well yeah I mean cash in injections well and good but I think first of all business needs to take a bit of responsibility for itself. I mean businesses will be putting in place um, various continuity programs. They've got a wider health issue to deal with if the virus does you know take mm. off. Do they put people at home to work? What happens? There's a lot of unknowns. I think however in this period before it really gets away I think that's the time when the government probably needs to be talking more with business finding out what business needs. Um, so far in the uh, pandemic planning there's been a lot of work on the public side making sure that the health authorities mm. in particular can cope with the crisis but I think it's now the time to drill down and find out exactly where the vulnerabilities are in business and as Shamalbeal said you know perhaps offer particular help. It's perhaps one of the vulnerabilities that we are too dependent on China as a market? Yeah well that'll be a question that will be asked particularly when it comes to education. I don't think there's any vulnerability there in the longer term when it comes to um, you know uh, food exports that that sort of thing. China is going to really want what we have to export in that mm. area but globally you know China has been one of the big drivers globally for um, uh, tourism for education foreign education international education call it what you will and now you know China may also want to stay home so there's a lot of imponderables
But also, I think the issue is it's a bit of a nonsense to say we should have diversified. We wouldn't have those cows and those exports and those jobs in these industries if it wasn't for China. Mm. There was nobody else who would have taken that stuff. So, you know, when people talk about diversification, they don't talk about a state where we're actually a smaller, poorer country. Mm. You heard their concern from the education sector, in particular, that we're, we're at the crunch point now. If we can't get these students into New Zealand within the next couple of weeks, there are going to be significant ramifications. Are those legitimate concerns, Shamabel? Absolutely. And Tourism is a huge, well, education is a big uh, industry for us, roughly worth about $5 billion to the economy. Mm. A billion of that comes from fees and a third of that comes from China. Do we relax the travel ban to China? Well, I think we should. I think we have to be mindful that this is a public health event that is not going to be going away anytime soon. It's spreading and it's spreading everywhere. So we can't just stop everything. Yes, we should take the appropriate precautions, but we can't essentially affect the lives of all the students and of our, our education institutions that we have made them reliant on um, things like expert education. Professor Michael Baker said to us this morning, it is only a matter of time until we have a, a, you know, many more mm -hmm. confirmed cases. He says up to 40% of the New Zealand population should expect to have it. So do you th think we should essentially <coughs> drop the travel bans all around and embrace it? Well, this is the difficult uh, trade-off that the government faces, is the more they do on the protecting New Zealanders side of it, the more it hurts our businesses and our mm -hmm. organisations. How do you make that balance and what will the New Zealand public hold them to account on? Um, in the immediate, in the immediate um, stage, I think it's very much about the health thing. But a year on, they'll look back and go, well, you decimated the economy and we don't like that. Well, I think but that's it debatable. It's debatable whether um, you know the government will decimate the economy. I think it's more than just the government, and I think business also plays a part in this. Uh, for instance, if we're talking about the universities, initially it was all about open the doors, uh, let them come in, and then it became, gosh, we've got to have a plan. Maybe self-isolation wasn't going to work. Why didn't they front foot that part earlier? If they'd been able to come up with something where people were, you know, quarantined. And, and not just through self-isolation, mm. but stay-at-home notices like Singapore does, they might be through this by now. Do you mean on the universities and yes. schools front? So if, the, if the universities and schools said, look, we've got a place here where these students can arrive and stay. I think, that, I think they have be, been considering it's that. It's got to be done, yeah. yes, but it's very late in the piece. Originally it was like they must treat right. just like New Zealanders returning, and that was never going to fly with the government. The government has been trying to buy time to prepare for a pandemic, to prepare for it on the health side. And I think, you know, ultimately governments have to put the health of their people first. The economy will flow from that. What does a worst case scenario look like? Uh, Grant Robinson says he reckons he'll know within the next month or so whether or not we are headed for recession. Well, I think part of the thing will be what's happening globally. You know, supply chains um, shutting down, other industries around the world mm. shutting down. We're not in this on our own. We can't fight it on our own. We're very exposed. We export to the world. He'll start to see that as supply chains, mm. you know, come to a halt. Well, also, we know for sure that the first quarter is a write-off, mm. and I think we're heading into a winter of discontent. It's really around what happens in the second half of this year. That's where the focus needs to be. So, in a, in a way, I think the budget's going to be critical in terms of having lots of um, ideas in terms of what they can do should things yeah, carry on. It doesn't on. have to be a winter of discontent. I mean, we've been through periods of dislocation before. We went through the GFC. People were shoulder to shoulder. Companies 
talk to their staff about what could they do mm. to shoulder the burn and wages, all the rest. But I mean, we and, don't, we don't you know, have much of a hope of finding new markets, though, do we, for example? No, it's not about that. It's about how do you actually get through a period where mm. your revenues are going to be crunched if you are in one of those industries that are exposed. Mm. And, and, you know, there's, we've done all this before. We're, this is not the first time we've faced this. Mm. No, and um, with, through the GFC, I think the impact was very much around businesses um, prioritised not letting staff go because they know mm. it's really mm. hard to get staff back. Mm. We have major skill shortages. Um, but unfortunately for us this time around, it is different from other crises in that not only do we have a demand shock, we also have a supply shock. Supply chains are broken and people aren't buying our stuff. Mm. We haven't seen this kind of combined effect before. Mm. So I think China requires... is starting to ramp up now. Mm. You know, but the problem isn't just China. The ripple effect of the Chinese shutdown on Korea, Japan and other sure. countries means that this does go on. So sure. and to we think that also, it's going to be short and sharp is unreasonable. We, we have faced similar um, contagion um, you know, through the mm. financial crisis of the late uh, 1990s with the East Asia financial crisis. It all closed down then too. I'm actually quite confident that we. It was a demand shock, we, not a supply shock. Well, I think we can focus on both. I, I'm actually quite confident that with um, some good leadership from both business and government, we can get through this. Let me ask and you. It's crucial we do. Let me ask you about the, the Prime Minister's press conference uh, with her Australian counterpart Scott Morrison the other day. Well, it was interesting, and, and I know the Prime Minister received a lot of praise for talking tough on Australia's deportation. Uh, position, mm -hmm. but you think it was a missed opportunity for him? Yes, I do. I think it was a missed opportunity for both Prime Ministers, uh, given that the coronavirus issue was one of the major, if not top items mm. on their private agenda, to actually talk about it in public, to reassure populations, to talk about what they're doing, and really put themselves shoulder to shoulder, you know, just telling us how we're going to cope with it. Ironically, of course, um, after the big deportation uh, face-off, um, just an hour or two later, Jacinda is an announcing from Australia we have our first case mm. of coronavirus here. Now, there's a bit of a disconnect. What do you think of the public health messaging generally? I mean, you, you look at the number of people who lined up for an hour or more at supermarkets yesterday versus the, the actual messaging itself, which is don't panic. We're not at a, a stage where we need to do any of that. What do you make of it, Chamabi? I'm not surprised. This is a human reaction, and I think that will blow over because the reality is um, the infection is still very much contained in New Zealand. The big thing for us is making sure people have confidence that mm -hmm. our health system can cope, that we have good plans in place, and that we are working with this on this together. Uh, as long as that message goes out, yes, we're going to see a bit of panic buying, but it will dissipate very quickly. The empty shelves of quinoa and, uh, and whatnot, I think, is going to be restored relatively quickly. <laughs> People are going to be very disappointed if all they're left with is quinoa. Fran O'Sullivan and Shama Yakub, thank you thank so much for your time. Now, as part of our interview, I also asked Grant Robertson about some big changes to KiwiSaver that have just been announced. From June next year, default providers will have to drop any investments in fossil fuels and illegal weapons. The settings will change too, from conservative to balanced funds. That means potentially more growth, but also a little more volatility. At the moment, people who are in default funds are actually missing out on quite significant amounts of money. There's about a 2% difference in the return between the consumers. Well, missing out on a tumultuous week as well. Well, that's also true. But that's really the point, actually, is that this has got to be a long-term view. And when the KiwiSaver system was established, there was an idea that people wouldn't stay in the default funds, mm. that we would act we'd all actively manage our KiwiSaver and move our money around. The reality is most people who go into those default funds stay in them. As a result, it's been time as part of our periodic review 
review to revisit that and say people will be better off in a balanced fund here. It's still a managed fund, but actually if we're going to have New Zealanders staying in those default funds for longer, they deserve the returns. Given this is a tumultuous economic period, are you, are you prepared to wear the criticism if people see their KiwiSavers dropping? Look, it's one of those things we have to talk to people about thinking about this for the long term. On balance, over time, they will do well out of this. Right now, it's being challenged. But, you know, we have a responsibility to show you leadership here, and it's one of the reasons why we've said we don't want the default funds investing in fossil fuels any longer. It's one of the reasons why we've said let's move to a balanced fund, because more people are staying in those default funds, and we need to support them to grow their incomes. Will funds that don't invest in fossil fuels deliver lower returns in the short term? No, not at all. And I think you've seen from the super fund who've moved their investments more towards getting out of fossil fuels, they're still doing very well. The reality is fossil fuel investments are likely to be investments in stranded assets because if you're thinking on a 20 and 30 and 40 year horizon, as investors must do, the move to a low emissions economy means actually they shouldn't be in fossil fuels so anyway. Why, why are you investing in so many new roads? No, because we need public transport on roads and we need a balanced um, picture in, in terms of the way that works and EVs go on roads as well. Do you personally have investments in fossil fuels? Uh, I, I actually have, an, uh, my KiwiSaver is in a fund where there is a very small amount of percentage in it, but it's actually one of the default funds so after this they won't be. Why haven't you divested from fossil fuels? Oh, look, you know, I, you know, I was one of the people who saw what was happening in uh, my default fund and maybe, you know, maybe I felt that eventually we'd get to the point we're at now. Maybe. <laughs> Finance Minister Grant Robertson there. Now, so you know, I also had an interesting exchange with the Finance Minister about child poverty statistics released this week, which despite the government's pledges show material hardship rates have not changed. Because of COVID-19, we don't have time to show you those comments now, but if you're interested in why the government hasn't lifted core benefit levels, go to our Facebook page and the One News Now website. Before we go to the break, this week's One Thing. Each Sunday on Q&A, we ask Kiwis to give us the one thing they would do if they had all the power in the land to make Aotearoa a better place to live. I'm Patty O'Boyle and I'm a sheep and beef farmer from the Wairapa. The one thing I'd like to see changed is a halt to the policy settings and legislation that are encouraging and enabling blanket pine tree planting on our world-leading food-producing land. It's unacceptable that farming businesses, rural communities and natural environments are being sacrificed, all the while investors speculate on carbon prices rising. It adds nothing to our regions and it's a zero-sum gain for New Zealand Inc. I'd like government to seriously rethink these policies. Right, a change of focus after the break on Q&A. Our gang problem appears to have escalated with the arrival of some Australian gang members kicked out under the Aussie government's hardline policy. The Prime Minister again asked Australia to reconsider that policy, but are we helpless to tackle the gangs? If you want to make this a political, you know, the, rep, the strike force for this election coming up, it's really disappointing for all the children that will be affected. We've, we've seen the arts team patrolling our areas, our brown communities. We've seen this for decades and decades. I accept that in your Waikato mongrel mob patch, there'll be some good that's being done. Why is it that your mongrel mob chapter is growing exponentially in numbers? Why is it that the methamphetamine numbers in Hamilton and the Waikato are going through the roof? Why is it your leader won't give back the illegal guns he has in the hundreds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
National leader Simon Bridges and Louise Hutchinson there. She's the PR operator for the Mongrel Mobs Waikato chapter at a community meeting organised by the National Party in Tauranga this week. Getting tough on crime is one of National's key election promises this year and most election years, to be fair. But in particular, there's a great deal of concern about crime and gangs in Bay of Plenty, where there's been a spike in gang violence. Dr Jared Gilbert wrote Patched, the History of Gangs in New Zealand and is the Director of Criminal Justice at the University of Canterbury. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. Thanks, Jeff. I want to get a big picture sense. We have seen over the last couple of months some very public examples of gang violence. We always hear about gang violence, though. So is this anything new? Do we have any particular reason to be concerned about gang violence at the moment? Um, it's new and old in, in some ways, because gang violence has been with us ever since gangs have been around, or at least patched gangs, Jack, in the, from the um, early 1960s. And in the 70s and 80s, these types of gang brawls, gang wars as we would call them, were very, very commonplace. But then a strange thing happened in the late 1990s and into the early 2000s, and that, that the gangs started to fall away. The numbers began to drop away. Mm. Many of the gangs that um, had been stalwarts of the New Zealand gang scene actually disappeared, and the numbers of the others tended to fall away. And so the violence disappeared with it. But then we see, we've seen an uptick in recent times, since probably around 2008. Mm. The uptick has come, um, that the numbers have increased, and so the in, uh, inevitable consequence of that is some gang violence. So it's, it's, it's not new by any stretch, but it feels but a bit new because, we, it's because yeah. we haven't seen it for a long time. So, so what, do you, what, do you, what do you put that down to? Why did we have a drop-off in gang numbers, and why have we seen an increase? Well, this is tricky because it's actually really hard to describe because it's so complex. The, um, when we came off that, that low base, what had been created was generational barriers, Jack, within the gang. So the gangs in the 60s and 70s and even into the early 80s, it was yeah. a young person's game. It was teenagers and, and men in their 20s. Well, what happened um, over the years is that, that people stopped leaving the gangs and so the average age began to increase. And when it got to a certain point, it created generational barriers within the groups. So young, rebellious men didn't want to go and hang out with their grandfather and listen to that type of music. They wanted right. to dress differently, act differently, and so they weren't joining. And then what, so what happened in 2008 is there was a resurgence in young people entering for a number of very complex reasons. Um, and what we've seen then is the, the growth come from that. Can, can, can you tell us about those reasons? Can you go into them a little bit? I, I appreciate they're complex. Well, well, they are. Well, look, the, 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 um, the people coming back from Australia, the so-called 501s, have had some impact but more than that actually it's that when the when the rebels um, came here in 2008 this was a this was probably the moment we can see it Australia's largest outlaw motorcycle gang mm. came here in, in 2008 and what they demonstrated by patching up a lot of people very quickly is that the appetite in the scene was still there and other groups began to respond and then we've had um, influences social media influences of methamphetamine of course um, and in some ways it's as simple and as complicated as changes in fashion. So they've just come back into vogue, as it were. Are we right to, to lump all gangs together? I mean, you hear the messaging oh. from the, the Waikato mongrel mob, for example, which says, oh, we're doing, we're doing some good in our community. This is the most significant thing I think that we probably need to get our heads around if we're going to have sound policy formation. And that is that we use this term gang to define the mongrel mob. We use mm. it to define, um, you know, a large, which is a sort of a large, predominantly Maori gang. Mm. Um, we use it to describe these out elite outlaw motorcycle clubs like the Hells Angels, for example. We use it to describe young 
runabouts on the street corner wearing bandanas. We, we call this all gang, right? And then within there, with the different chapters of the mongrel mob, we see difference. So each chapter of the mongrel mob can be entirely different for one another. You use the example of the Waikato mongrel mob. They're acting in ways we haven't seen gangs behave ever in New Zealand. And then when you get within the individual chapters of each of these groups, you find difference as well. So some members are highly criminal and others are no more criminal than your average Joe in those communities. And so what happens is that we have policies that target this word gangs, mm. and yet we don't see similarity within the scene, we see difference. So for example, if we're looking at methamphetamine, we know that the, the methamphetamine trade intersects greatly throughout the gangs, so that many, many gang members are involved in the methamphetamine trade. But we also know that the methamphetamine trade extends far beyond the gang scene. So when we're saying we just target the gangs, if it comes to methamphetamine, what we want to be targeting, targeting is organised crime. Mm. So even these most elementary, utterly elementary understandings mm. of our scene aren't accepted by politicians and many in the public. And therefore, when you're devising policy, you're always going to get it wrong. Mm. Because if you can't define the problem, the very first stage of good policy formation, if you don't understand those basic, basic things, then down the track, the policies are either going to fail mm. or they're going to have unintended consequences. And this, unfortunately, Jack, is what we've seen throughout history. So there's nothing here that I will say to the public that will change their minds. They're going to see a politician on the hustings going, we're going to crush the gangs. Um, and they're going to find that attractive. And I, and I know that. Why? Because we've seen it happen throughout history. Should the public be scared? Are people right to be concerned? Yes, uh, yes, I think so. Um, when you, you talk about up on, um, up on the East Coast, there are um, concerns up there. When, when gang members are firing guns um, in the main street of your town, mm. then I think you've got a genuine right to be concerned. Um, however, we do need to keep that into a perspective as well, that, again, we have had these incidents a, 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 you know, occasionally throughout history mm. um, in New Zealand, and the police are very, very good at actually dealing with those problems when they when they spike. But we do need to keep the problem in perspective. So, yep, we've mm. got every right to be concerned and we ought to be looking for solutions. But, you know, and, and, you know, was it last week or the week before that poor little mite who was um, kicked, a, kicked yeah. a near death in, in, in Flaxmere? I mean, we've got a far greater problem with family violence. One every five weeks of those children are killed and yet we don't have the same response that we have to gangs. Yeah. The gangs um, are sound great on the hustings. Um, but they are far from being our most significant concerns around crime and justice issues in New Zealand. I, I want to put to you a comment by the Eastern District Commander, Superintendent Tanya Kuda, who said the gangs were, quote, beyond the control of the police. What was your understanding of that comment? And, and should police be doing more? Yeah, well, see, the, I feel in some ways I, the police have my sympathies here, actually, because we tend to look at the gang situation as a law and order issue, and from time to time they certainly are. But if we see it solely as law and order, we turn to the, to the police and say, solve this problem. Mm. And they can solve the problems when, it's, um, when, when the violence sort of erupts in certain towns. They can solve that. But the issues of gangs are far more complex than that and extend beyond law and order. Um, Superintendent Kura, I thought her comments were incredibly mature in some ways because what she was saying, and really intelligent, really intelligent, and she, should, and she should be congratulated for them because what they were in some ways was the complete reverse of the usual mm. um, rhetoric that comes out of political figures. And she was saying the police can't do this by 
themselves. That if we really want to tackle the gang problem, then we have to extend it, extend it to other state agencies right. and community groups, actually. This is something far bigger than just a problem with law and order. You know, if, if you think about the kids getting um, the family violence issues, those, fa those children that are surviving in those families where family violence is rife and one in every five weeks um, mm. are, are being killed, Jack. That's a, you know that's the next generation of offenders. That's the next generation of gang members. Well, if we really want to come to grips with the gang issue, we've got to tackle those types of issues. You're um, talking about systemic well. change rather rather than just a let's send police in to, to take patches and guns off. People. Well, and, and the reason we need that is because if you go back way way back into 1972, when Norman Kirk promised an mm. opposition to take the bikes off the bikies before the 1972 election. John Banks in the late 80, uh, 1980s said he was going to crush the gangs. Into the 1990s, in opposition again, we see uh, Mike Moore and uh, Phil Goff actually as well talking about going to crush the gangs and bringing in all this legislation to do so and, and so on and so on until we get Simon Bridges today. What we see there is the same rhetoric and it's not a left and a right issue, it's an opposition and government issue. Mm. Labour and National are just as guilty of this. But we can't blame them, can we? We can't blame them for doing it. Why? Because it works. It works every time. We shouldn't be looking at John Bridges about this issue. We should be looking at ourselves as a voting public and going, mm. why on earth do we get suckered by this every time? Because we do. And, 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 if, and, we, and if we're prepared to get suckered by it, Jack, we're going to be having this conversation before the next you know, the, the, the election. In, in, in 20 years' time. Mm. So, so then if we do want to support sound policy that, that might reduce gang violence in New Zealand, what sort of policy should we be looking to? Well, again, I think it's that, it is that policy um, uh, form or the problem definition that we need to get our heads around, that we need to understand that the gangs are a very complex phenomena. And given that, it's going to take mm. complex solutions to, to come to grips with them. And that is going to require strong policing at times, without question. And we should, be, um, we should never forget the fact that strong policing isn't just... Um, inevitable, it's desirable, we, mm. we require that. But we must extend it beyond that and look at the reasons why people are joining gangs um, and attempt to intervene in those and provide substitutes to ensure that we have longer term processes. And, and again, I, I hate to keep coming back to it, but the issues of family violence, if we, we do not have gangs occurring in communities which have had, with, with young people that have had great upbringings that have had excellent education um, uh, and, and, and stable households. We mm. don't have that. They come in certain communities, Jack, and, and this, isn't a, um, this isn't a coincidence. You know, th this is a direct result. Well, if we're going to turn our back on those types of issues and just say, just police them, just police them, we will never come to grips with mm. them. So it's about extending that de debate, um, including law and order, of course, but mm. extending it beyond Laura. Well, I hope we can do that on Q&A this year. I tell you what, I wish the show was three hours. It's so interesting speaking with you. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jack. Dr. Jared Gilbert. We'll have your feedback after the break. And this week's quiz is an easy one. Jared, no excuses if you get this one wrong. At which New Zealand Prime Minister's funeral did the mongrel mob perform a haka? That answer is coming next. <laughs> Kia ora te whanau. welcome back. We'll go to your feedback now. On COVID-19, the coronavirus, Anne Neal emailed us this. New Zealand universities should teach via Skype, webinars and remote learning. This will especially help to reach their overseas students. Grant McConaughey emailed, New Zealand and its people's health is more important than a few students being delayed in their studies. On gangs, Jonathan Buck posted, take away their toys and give them something constructive to do. 
while Krish tweeted this. This government is more concerned about giving prisoners the right to vote than actually controlling crime, which has become a menace in society and a nightmare for law-abiding citizens. While Tim Pate tweeted, I think it's mostly an economic and drug issue and a big problem that requires a radical solution. And a lot of you knew the answer to our political quiz. It was, of course, Sir Robert Muldoon's funeral in 1992, where the mongrel mob performed a haka as the hearse left the Auckland Town Hall. As Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon engaged with the gangs. He believed government-subsidised work schemes could help to keep them from crime. Kua mutu. That is us for this week. Thanks for watching. And nā mihi kia karede. Thanks for your contributions. We will see you for Q&A next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Hey corner. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.